Morning, church family. It is an honor to be with you this morning, be here with you this morning. It is cold in Albany, Georgia. I got in my car and I said, coffee and seat warmer, don't fail me now. It was, it was uh, kind of shocking, and we got uh, an hour less of sleep this morning, so the faithful and true are here this morning in the seats. The rest of you are greeting you from here at home, so in your pajamas, so we're glad you're here. Uh, we're going to be talking this morning about the loving discipline of God, and uh, I want to ask you a question. What are you praying that God will do in your life concerning your relationship with Him? your intimacy with him. What are you praying that he'll do in your life concerning your character, your Christ-likeness, your growth spiritually? What have you been praying concerning your fruitfulness? Do you pray, Lord, use my life for your glory. Use me to reach people. Help me to accomplish more. Help me to have less waste and more fruitfulness in my life. Are those are things you're praying? Those are things I pray for. What about the sin that's in your life, the besetting sins, the things that keep showing up that are haunting you in some ways or irritating you or dragging you down? How have you been praying about those things in your life? Because all of these things are dealt with concerning why God disciplines his children. Now, when I was in 10th grade, I knew the Lord. I was young and cocky. I remember the day at school, I was wearing my Knights of the Round Table sweatshirt, which I thought was really cool. I had my cool pair of jeans on that morning, and I was kind of strutting around campus, and my dad was the principal at my high school. There was a girl that I liked in my typing class at school, and in the midst of us goofing off before class started, the teacher walked out of the room, and I went over and I locked the door and locked her out of the room. <laughs> now, I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> she did not. She goes up to the principal's office and comes down, and he knocks on the door. And I'm, we're giggling and laughing, ha, we like the teacher out of the room. He opens the door, he says, you come with me. He takes me up to the principal's office, and he sits me down, and he lays into me. True story with my hand up. He says, you've been cocky at home, you've been disrespectful to your mother, you've been playing around the edges. He laid out all the things that I've been doing. He says, you need to be humbled. And he said, and I'm going to paddle you in my office right now. I'm in 10th grade. <laughs> I got my Knights of the Round Table sweatshirt on. <laughs> and he says, I'm not going to paddle you as the principal. I'm going to paddle you as your father. And my dad paddles me in his office, pulls out the Board of Education and applies it to my constitutional convention. <laughs> Then he walks out of the room, and my prideful 10th grade cocky self got deflated and got humbled big time in my dad's office. He told me he loved me, but he wasn't going to put up with this any longer. I remember when he left, I sat there, 
And it was almost like God opened up my ear and started pouring wisdom into my head. And I remember thinking, I got to grow up. I got to quit goofing off. I, I, I need to start making my life count. I need to quit being an idiot and quit wasting time. Soon after that, I surrendered my life fully to Christ because I had been playing games with God. I knew him, but I was not fully surrendered to him. I knew there was areas of my life where he would tell me something and I would say, no, I'm not going to do that. There's some things I'll say yes to you, but these things I'm going to say no to. I remember I quit caring about what the girl at the time thought about, what my friends thought about the time, and I started caring more about what God thought about me and about my relationship with him. I look back to my 10th grade year as one of the most significant years of my life. I'm so grateful for the commitment I made that year. When I took the parking brake off and I shifted gears and I got serious about my relationship with God, I'm so grateful and I'm grateful for a loving father who did what I needed at that time, even though it was embarrassing and painful. So, with you and I, God, every, with every one of his children, we're going to read a passage that says, because he loves you, he will discipline you. This passage has been on my mind for weeks. We've been studying Hebrews in our Sunday school class. And this is one of those ones that's left a mark on me. It's affected how I view my own children. It's affected how I view my own ongoing relationship with the Lord. It's affecting how I'm approaching his word now. So I want to share this with you this morning. The book of Hebrews was written to believers. They were Jewish Hebrew believers, but they were beat up and they were struggling. They were being publicly humiliated. Their houses were taken away from them. And they were being strongly tempted to go back into their old lives, to go back into sin, to give up on the gospel, to give up on the Lord. And the writer of Hebrews is coming in and he says, it's not time to get far away. It's time to draw closer to God. It's not time to go back into sin. It's time to repent more of sin. It's not time to give up. It's time to press on. You have a father who loves you. You have promises that are still to be fulfilled in your life, and they're coming. Blessings, strength, all of these things. And he presents in chapter 12, after walking through what Christ has done for us and who he is, he presents in chapter 12, it's like you're in a marathon. You need to realize, don't quit. You're surrounded by all these people. In chapter 11, he says, look, look at Abraham. He's cheering you on from the stands. He had a hard time. He had faith, though. He trusted God. And, and God didn't tell him everything, but he told him enough to trust him for the next day and the next season. And look how God blessed him and rewarded him. He says, look over there at Moses and all that he went through, and he trusted God by faith. Look at Noah over there. And he goes on to talk about all of these epic people in Scripture that had hard times and went through hard seasons, but they learned to trust God. And by faith, they had enough information to move forward in obedience. And then God rewarded their obedience. And when at the end of that chapter, he's challenging and encouraging. And he says, some of these people, they did miracles by faith. 
Their children were raised back from the dead. Out of, out of weakness, they were made strong. He said they stopped the mouths of lions. Great things by faith. Some of them, it was by faith that God helped them to endure during the hard times. They were being kicked out of their houses. They were wandering around sometimes. They were cut in half. They were persecuted. All of these, there were bad things that happened, but by faith, they kept clinging to God. They kept holding on to him during those hard times, both by faith, the miracles, and enduring the hard times. And so in chapter 12 of Hebrews, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn there. And he starts off by giving this epic analogy of it's like a marathon. He says, therefore, seeing we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, He says, we need to throw off, like a runner does before a race, anything that's holding us back from doing God's will, anything that's holding us back from our relationship with the Lord. He said, let's throw off the weights and the sins. Sometimes it's not sin, it's good things that are not God's best things and they're holding us back. He says, you throw off those sins, but you throw off the weights. And he said, and then we're going to run and we're going to have to do it with endurance At the beginning of the race, people are cheering for you. You feel good. At the end of the race, you get across the finish line of people cheering for you. But in the middle of the race, you feel like you can barely put one foot in front of another. He says, you're going to have to run with endurance this race that is marked out for you, this race of life, this race of faith. And he says, you need to fix your eyes on Jesus. Remember him. He's cheering you on. He's gone ahead of you. He's been victorious. Look at all that he endured out of love for you despising the shame, set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You and I can look at Christ. He is in heaven cheering us on. So in Hebrews 12, after he lays this out, he says in verse 3, for consider him who has endured, this is Jesus, such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He says, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, Jesus did, but you have not, in your striving against sin. Now here it is, verse five, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. He's quoting now a proverb, Proverbs chapter three. He says, this word, this exhortation has been given you and you've forgotten about it. And here's what it is. He quotes this passage out of Proverbs three. He says, my son, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord, what's the next word? Loves. He disciplines. And he scourges who? What are the next two words? Every son, every daughter whom he receives. Your translation may say whom he delights, who he favors. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers. You plug in your father's name there, possibly. We had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. 
but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Let's pray together. Would you ask the Lord right now, knowing you perfectly, knowing your situation perfectly, knowing your heart perfectly, and knowing your future perfectly, would you ask the Lord right now to open the eyes of your heart to his word and speak to you individually? Father, in Jesus' name, we give you this time. We pray your Holy Spirit would work in every heart, every son, every daughter of yours. Lord, we pray that those that don't know you would realize that Jesus is real, that he died on the cross and rose again from the grave for them, and that through faith in him, they can become your beloved children. Lord, we pray this morning that you would love on us through your word, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you want to say. Lord, we pray that you would draw us closer to yourself. You would make us more like Christ. You would help us to be found faithful. You would help us to let go of sin that we have not been able to let go of in the past, and that you would use our lives for your glory in the days ahead. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All coaches, if they are a good coach, will train their players, not because they're in sin, but because they want them to succeed. Every Olympic athlete will put themselves under the leadership of professional trainers, and the better the trainer, the harder they tend to be on the athlete. And they don't do it because they hate them or they want them to fail. They do it because they care about them and they want them to win the gold medal. So there is a training aspect to our relationship with God that has nothing to do with sin. Job was not in sin when God allowed him to go through tribulation. Joseph was trying to be a faithful son. Daniel loved the Lord. It doesn't show that these men were in sin, but they went through great pain and tribulation in their lives. And God brought great glory to himself through their faithfulness during the hard times. But God also does look at the sin that's in our lives, and he calls us to repent. The sin destroys us. The sin distracts us. It deceives us. It holds us back. The sin is the opposite of love towards God and love towards other people. He's not trying to take away your fun. He's trying to give you true freedom. He's not trying to enslave you. He's trying to liberate you when he calls you to repent of sin. So one of the most loving things God can say to us if our lives are heading off a cliff is, I love you, you're heading in the wrong direction, turn around and head towards my will for your life. So the call to repentance is not a call to enslave you or discourage you. It is to help you in every way. This morning, I want to jump to the chase. And if you look at Hebrews 12, 4 and 5, 
There are four different ways that God disciplines us that are referenced in this passage, and let me go ahead and give them to you, and then we're going to break them down. If you look in verse 5 of Hebrews 12, he says, you have forgotten the exhortation. Underline that word exhortation. That's the first thing God does in our lives. It's the first thing a parent should be doing in their life. A coach should be doing with their players. An exhortation is very encouraging, and it's training us in the locker room. It's prepping us before we go out into the world. Secondly, if you underline next to the word reproved, he says, nor faint when you are reproved by him. Reproof is a little bit uncomfortable. And this is when he's rebuking us and he's correcting things that we've done wrong. Thirdly, in verse 6, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, it says, your translation may say chastens in that situation. It could be a chastening, it could be a disciplining, but this is a next level tool that God will use in our lives. This is another level of discomfort in our lives. It's turning up the heat. And then he says, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Underline the word scourging. You may have the word chastisement in in your translation, but this is the next level of pain that God says he brings into the life of every one of his children. It may be because of sin, it may not be because of sin, but it is always done out of incredible love for us. Understanding the bigger picture, understanding what he's trying to accomplish in our lives, and understanding the glory he wants to bring to himself. You don't see it in these verses, but down in verse nine it says, shall we not rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live. The last way that God may discipline his children is through death. He may take us home. We may get to the point where we are unteachable, unusable, or he wants to bring great glory through our lives rapidly through a fruitful death. It may not be because we're in sin, but it may be because it's time and he knows that in this situation, like Stephen being martyred in scripture, God has decided he's going to bring great glory, speed up the process through a fruitful death that is in our lives. Now, let's break these down. This is quoting, again, a proverb that Solomon is giving his son in Proverbs chapter 3. He says, you have forgotten first the exhortation from my father. Let's talk about the word exhortation. It means to verbally instruct, warn, or encourage to act rightly. Again, this is, a, this is a football coach in the locker room teaching the plays, teaching here's what the opponent's going to do, warning them, don't do this when you get in the game. And he says, now listen, remember who you are. And he's rallying them up before they get out in the game. He's encouraging them. He's pepping them up and he's saying, you can do this. Remember what team you represent. You have what it takes. We can beat this team. I want you to go out there and be victorious. And a parent needs to, on a regular basis, exhort their children. You're constantly telling them, I love you. I believe in you. I'm proud of you. This is a very relational word. It's connected to being in a relationship with someone. It's also a, uh, a it means to come alongside someone. You're encouraging them. You're putting your arm around them. You're cheering them on. It means to verbally not only inform and instruct, but to warn 
and in to inspire. It's a very comforting word, and it's an encouraging word. And it's also connected by giving specific instructions, urging someone to take specific steps of action towards success, towards God's best, towards God's will in their life. And there are parents who do a great job of this, and there's parents that don't do a great job of this. God is a great parent. And throughout His Word, almost every chapter of the Bible is filled with exhortation. He's giving you warnings. He's giving you encouragement. He's reminding you of His love for you. And He's prepping you beforehand, before the temptation, and before you get out in the game. Many times when you open up God's Word and you're reading it, God may not be dealing with something that you're dealing with right now, but He knows it's coming. It's coming in a few days, a few weeks, a few months, and he begins to speak to you through his word, and he's exhorting you. And we need to be receptive and listening to the exhortation. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. So what is the instruction in this passage? What is the exhortation? Because verses 4 and 5 and 6 are the exhortation. He says, my son, there's the relationship. It's not my sons or daughters. God is speaking to you individually. And he says, now listen, don't regard lightly, don't blow it off when you're disciplined by your father, nor faint when you are reproved by him. The next level of discipline is reproof. Now, exhortation is not just something that God does for us and a parent does for their child, but if you can go back to that uh, one verse, uh, that one slide right before this, Dan, I want to mention something. Believers are supposed to be exhorting each other every day. Hebrews 3.13 says, exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. There's a large percentage of our lives where we will grow and all we need is the encouragement. All we need is the exhortation the inspiration. All we need is the clarity as to what God is doing in our life. Now, when you get out in the game, though, what does the football coach do when you're not following the exhortation? When you're out in the game and you step out of line, he starts yelling at you. That's when the reproof comes in. And this is not about everything. This is about the specific areas of your life where you're stepping in error. And so that's reproof. Reproof means to verbally rebuke wrongdoing, exposing fault, and calling for change. You're going, you're zeroing in on the specific area where this person isn't following the exhortation, isn't doing the right thing. Again, you're not doing it because you want them to fail. The coach is wanting you to have greater success. The parent is saying, this area of your life, you're stepping out of line, and there is a rebuke, a reproof that is involved in this situation. Now, Nobody likes to be rebuked, but that's the point, to make you uncomfortable so that you change. An exhortation is comfortable. It's compassionate. A rebuke is jarring. It's uncomfortable. When you rebuke someone, sometimes there's a little anger in the authority that's in their voice, and it can be a very righteous anger. God says that he exhorts us, but he also reproves and rebukes his children. He cranks it up a little bit. In the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel, Eli the priest had two wicked sons named Hophni and Phinehas who did not know the Lord, who didn't fear God, but they were serving in the temple. They were dishonoring the sacrifices. 
They were committing sexual immorality. They were taking advantage of the people. And Eli the priest, if you go back and read, read, he exhorted them. He encouraged them and said, this is not right. You need to fix these things. But God rebuked later on Eli. He said, you did not rebuke them. He said, I will judge them, but you are going to experience the judgment too, Eli, because you did not rebuke your sons. You didn't take it to the next level. Now, Proverbs also talks about rebuke and how good it is in our lives and how good it is to do it when it is appropriate. Proverbs 27.5 says, better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Sometimes we care about somebody, but we hold it back. He says to rebuke them when they're in error is more loving than to withhold love from them at other times. Proverbs 28.23, he who rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. So there will be times when, when you rebuke a brother or sister, or when you rebuke a child, or when you're rebuked by your boss at work, and in that situation, it's uncomfortable in the moment, but later on, you respect that person more for shooting straight with you and telling you the truth. Your children respect you more. The players respect the coach more because they called them to the carpet when they stepped out of line. All believers are encouraged and challenged in Scripture to exhort one another, but we're also told to rebuke one another. Luke 17, 3, he says, watch yourselves. Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. Now, in American culture where people have pampered Christian lives, we're all about exhortation. But there's not a whole lot of rebuking going on because it's uncomfortable to do it, and it's uncomfortable to receive it, and we like our comfort zones. But God wants us to love one another and to go beyond our comfort zones. Matthew 18 lays out discipline in the church, and he talks about confronting a brother or sister who is in sin. Now, I don't like to be rebuked, but I think back to key moments in my life where the exhortation wasn't getting it done in my life. I needed somebody to shoot straight with me. And I can think back, and you probably can too, where there were awkward moments where somebody came to you and shot straight with you. It says, what you're doing is wrong. Now, at that moment, it's uncomfortable. And you may walk away and, and rant about it. You may complain about it. You may be upset about it. In this passage, he says, don't faint when you are rebuked. He says, now, don't grow weary when you're disciplined. Don't treat it lightly when you're being disciplined. Now, I've got six kids. We have a wide variety of, of responses that I have seen over the years to discipline. And I have seen both me just saying, hey, that's wrong what you did. And one of my daughters crying and weeping and, you know, Daddy, you hurt my feelings when you said that. Your feelings need to be hurt because your pride needs to be brought down in this situation. And I love you, but I'm telling you the truth in this situation. Don't faint when you're rebuked. Have you been rebuked by the Lord? Are you wallowing in it? Are you in the fetal position? Are you sucking your thumb when God rebukes you? Because the way we respond to rebuke says a lot about what's going on in our lives and heart. In fact, there are verses in Proverbs that talk about that that how we respond to rebuke says a lot about who we are 
It says a lot about where we are in our walk with God. Listen to this, Proverbs 19.8, do not reprove a scoffer. This is a foolish, mocking, stubborn, rebellious person. It says, don't reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. He may not love you at that moment, but they will love you. Look at Proverbs 17.10 on the screen. A rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. A person who is wise will get more out of a rebuke than someone else. He says, if it was a fool getting a hundred lashes, the wise person will get more out of a rebuke. And God says, when he, because he loves us, he doesn't just exhort, he will rebuke us. Here's the third way God disciplines us. He says he chastens. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He disciplines, your translation may say. This is a parent training their child word. The implication there is this is a parent to their child. And they're not just teaching, but they're spanking And this means to inflict minor pain. It was a picture of a rod or a stick. And you're cranking up some minor pain because the rebuke didn't get it done. God's love is relentless towards us. And so he will intensify our training when needed. Proverbs 13, 24, he who withholds his rod, notice the word rod, hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. You know, this morning's message is actually not about parenting. This is about God's relationship with us. Let me ask you a question. Does God hate you? No. (laughs) Because he loves you, he says right there, he who withholds discipline hates his son or daughter. But he who loves them disciplines them diligently. Proverbs 23, 14, you shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from hell or Sheol or the place of the grave. I found another translation. If you punish him with a spanking, you will save him from a fool's death. You know, there's a lot of people in prison today that are suffering greatly. If they had gotten just a little bit more discipline as children, they may not be suffering as much or causing as much suffering as adults. So the long-range thought is here, that God is willing to step in diligently means quickly. It means God's willing to get up early in the morning and come after you because he loves you. He says, you will save him from a fool's death. Now, if you're like me, you know there's a difference between a mama spanking and a daddy spanking. When I was growing up and mom said, go get me a switch or go get me a belt, I'd go get one of those cloth belts. And so she's trying to wear me out with this cloth belt. And I had to turn on the acting ability. Oh, oh. But inside, I knew I was going to be all right. But when dad came home, when dad got involved, when I got paddled by dad, my dad used a belt. He used one of those thick 1970s belts. They had the two holes all the way down it. And when he pulled off that belt, he got it done. Now, he always communicated to me, here's what's happening. 
here's, here's the rules. Here's what you have done. And here's why I'm going to spank you. I love you. But I'm not going to put up with this any longer. Sometimes I put my hand back there to try to block it, and that never worked very well. But when, get, when Dad got it done, it was an awakening that would happen in my life. And then he would usually leave the room and let me cry it out. Sometimes I would, you know, gag and cough like I was dying, you know, and I would just make this big production out of it. And now I see it with my own children when they do that. I'm like, you're not going to die. You're going to be okay, you know. I've noticed they come cuddle with me more and are much more respectful and yes, ma'am, to their mother after they get a good reset button discipline. But my dad, sometimes I'd even be laying in bed at night, and I'd hear my dad in the other room changing clothes and putting on his PJs. He'd pull that belt off, and I'd just... <laughs> I'd get the willies in the bed. But I knew he loved me. Amen. And my kids, I asked my son John one day, I said, you know I love you, don't you? And he said, yes. I said, how do you know? He said, because you spanked me. And I was like... <laughs> I was like, of all the things I do for you, that's what you point out? I was like, but that's absolutely right, because I tell him how much I love him before and after any kind of spanking. But this word right here, scourging, is the next level. It actually means to whip with cords. It is the same word used when Jesus created a whip and drove the money changers out of the temple. It's also the same word used when Jesus was scourged. We're talking major pain in this situation. Now, the Bible is not advocating for child abuse. God is not saying, slap your children around, bruise them up, beat them over the head, call them worthless, kick them in the corner. He's saying, be very loving in how you train your children. But God says, this is what he does in our lives. This is a daddy spanking. This is another level. This is a wake-up call. Proverbs 15.10 says, grievous punishment is for him who forsakes the way. You think about a football coach. They exhort, then they rebuke from the sidelines. Sometimes they pull them off the field and stick them on the bench. Sometimes they got to kick them off the team. You think about a police officer. Sometimes you get a warning. Sometimes you get a ticket. Sometimes you get arrested. Sometimes people spend years in jail. Some people get the death penalty. You think about an employer, training. Sometimes they rebuke their employees. Sometimes they dock their pay or give them unpaid leave. Sometimes they fire them. Sometimes they have to turn them in to the police to be arrested. There is this order that happens that we see in life and God says, because of his love for us, he's going to do whatever it takes to get the job done in our lives. And we say, well, why? Why would God do this? I want to show you this quote by Warren Wiersbe. He says, chastening is the evidence of the Father's love. Satan wants us to believe that the difficulties of life are proof that God does not love us. But just the opposite is true. Sometimes God's chastening is seen in his rebukes from the word or from circumstances. At other times, he shows his love by punishing us. The Lord scourges us with some physical suffering 
Whatever the experience, we can be sure that his chastening hand is controlled by his loving heart. The Father does not want us to be pampered babies. He wants us to become mature adult sons and daughters who can be trusted with the responsibilities of life. If you read Revelation 1, 2, and 3, go back and this is your homework. The first three chapters of Revelation, you see Jesus disciplining the churches. And he says in there, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. To some, he's warning them of removing their influence and their, their candle stand. To others, he's talking about suffering that may come. To some, he talks about humiliation that is on the brink. Some is loss of great rewards. But if you go back and read, it is this picture of the exhortation and the reproof, the chastening and the scourging of God's own people. God's final means of discipline is something parents don't do, but God reserves the right for himself to do, and that is to take the life of a person. Ask Ananias and Sapphira if God is willing to kill somebody if they get to that point. 1 Corinthians 10 warns New Testament believers repeatedly that when the children of Israel rebelled, complained, worshiped idols, and committed sexual immorality, he got to the point where he began to allow them to die in the wilderness. Sometimes he rapidly sped up their death quickly. God's word says that in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 11, that whoever eats the bread, drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. And he warns Christians, believers, God's children, that is why many of you are weak and sick, and some of you have died. So you see the chastening, the scourging, and the death that happens. We've seen this happen in ministry. We can actually tell you stories of people in this church over the years that refused to repent of sin, and it wasn't anybody on staff or anyone else. We saw God take them out, and it was clear because of what they were going through. He loves us, but he is a powerful, holy God. We don't play games with God. We don't snub our nose at God. We don't stiffen our neck at God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, it says in Hebrews. And Hebrews 12 goes on to warn sternly believers. Why does God discipline us? Look in verse 7. He lays out a few things. Verses 7 through 11 are the benefits of this discipline. He says, it is for discipline that you endure. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. You want God to discipline you because it is evidence that you are his child. When I got in trouble as a kid, my friend was with me, he'd get sent home, I'd get spanked because I was daddy's kid. That wasn't dad's kid. When God comes after you, out of his love for you, it's because you are his child. And so verses seven and eight communicate endurance and identity. These two things are connected as part of God's discipline in our lives. He's bringing about strength and endurance, and he's reminding us that we are his beloved children. Anytime God disciplines you, the devil's gonna say it's because he hates you or he doesn't love you, and the opposite is true. 
Look in verse 9. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us. We respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Right here in this passage, submission, he's teaching us to obey, teaching us to respect and live and protection. Oftentimes, God will chasten, discipline, scourge his children to bring about respect and submission in our lives and to protect us, not just to protect us from death, but he wants to bring life and life more abundant and blessings in our lives. That's his desire for us. Verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. He disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. So there's growth here, and there's actually intimacy here. Repeatedly in Scripture, holiness is connected to intimacy with God, to drawing in His presence, to being closer to Him. So he's communicating one of the reasons God rebukes, exhorts, chastens, and scourges you is because He wants you to grow up spiritually. He wants you to become more like Christ. He wants to draw you closer to Himself. And then in verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who've been trained, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I'm beginning to live rightly. I get right with other people. I'm getting right with God. There's fruitfulness that begins to flow in and through my life as a result of his discipline. So righteousness and fruitfulness is showing up in my life as a result of what he's doing. Consider it all joy, Sherwood Baptist Church, when you encounter various trials and temptations, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance so that you may be complete, mature, mature, lacking nothing in your life. There's so many passages of Scripture where you begin to look at, through, look at it through this lens and you realize that the hard things I'm going through, God is using for good. He's conforming me to the image of His Son. And I look back to the growth that happened in my life in 10th grade, but the scourging for me happened in the year 2000. I was serving in ministry, not taking Sabbath rests, saying yes to everything, and I went through a four-month period where I started having panic attacks, I started dealing with depression, I could not sleep, I started questioning my faith, my identity in Christ. I started questioning God. The enemy started attacking me full on, and I went through the, the most thing like hell on earth I'd ever been through. And during that time, I wondered, why is God allowing this to happen to me? After coming out of it, I look back, and I see He rapidly grew my walk with him. He rapidly humbled me. He rapidly drew me more intimately with him. He rapidly made me more fruitful and compassionate towards other people. My growth towards Jesus and to become more like Jesus rapidly sped up during that traumatic time in my life, where I felt like I was hanging by a thread. I understood why people kill themselves when I was in that season of my life. I understood why people run to alcohol and drugs during that season of my life, because I had no peace, and I was sleepless, and I was wrestling with my identity in Christ. Where are you in your journey with God? What is He doing in your life? 
You may be in a great season and things are going great. He's still exhorting you, teaching you, growing you. You may be in a tough season right now. He may be rebuking you. But all of these things can happen at different times and in different ways. But knowing his goal, what would happen in your life if you and I always viewed tough times by asking these questions? God, how are you going to use this to draw me closer to you? Lord, how are you going to use what we're going through right now to make us humble and more like Jesus? Lord, how are you going to use this to make me more fruitful for your kingdom? Lord, how are you going to use this to teach me more about who you are? Because there are many things you've prayed for that God would do in your life, and he is accomplishing the answers to those prayers through all of these means. It may be, Lord, why are you allowing this? He says, I'm answering your prayers. I've exhorted, and we've made a lot of progress but I've needed to rebuke and reprove in some areas of your life. I know it was uncomfortable when you went through that, but I love you, but I've accomplished more in you through this. There's some other areas, though, the exhortation and the reproof didn't get it done, but I love you, so I'm going to crank up the heat, the chastening that's in your life, and there's some things where it's going to take the scourging. And in that situation, hold on. That's what this passage is talking about. Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't faint when you're reproved by him because he loves you. He's disciplining you as a father, his child. He's forming Christ's likeness in you. He's at work in you. He's accomplishing his work in you. He's helping you to turn away from sin. He's preparing you to be strong for the next season of your life. So be encouraged. Be exhorted. So this morning, I don't know what the Lord is doing in your life right now. You may be Joseph in jail. You may be Job struggling. But you're also being compared to Jesus because Scripture communicates that Jesus, he was exhorted by the Father and loved on. But Jesus was also rebuked in our place for our sake. He was chastised and whipped and hit. He was hit with rods for our sake, in our place. Jesus was scourged in our place for our sake. Jesus died in our place for our sake. When I heard that word chastised, I thought about Isaiah 53. Our griefs he bore, our sorrows he carried. He was smitten of God, afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement For our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each Each of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The gospel is embedded even in how God disciplines us. So this morning, I pray that you and I will become wise. That we'll learn faster when we're exhorted. We don't need the rebuke, the scourging. Lord, yes, sir. I'm going to make my heart malleable to you. I want to be wise. I want to get more out of a rebuke or the exhortation. I don't want to have to go through the scourging. But Lord, whatever you want to do, accomplish your work in me. God has great plans for this church, and he has great plans for you individually. 
exceedingly abundantly above all you can ask or imagine. The fruitfulness that is on the other side, the rewards, heaven that we have before us. So at this time, be encouraged. Be not weary in well-doing. Throw off the sin, the weights. Fix your eyes on Jesus and run with endurance. Let us run with endurance, the race that is marked out for us. Let's stand together and pray. You may be here this morning, and you do not have a relationship with God, and today is the day of salvation for you. As Pastor Paul points out every week, humanity was created for a relationship with God, but our sins separate us from him. Sins cannot be removed by our good deeds or anything that we can accomplish on our own. No human effort can take that away. But out of his love for us, God sent his son Jesus to die the death that we deserved, and he died on a Roman cross, and to rise again so that we could be forgiven and have new life. And anyone who is willing to turn from their sins and place their faith in Jesus, they don't have to accomplish what he accomplished. They don't have to earn their salvation. It is out of his kindness towards us and through his grace that he, at the expense of Christ, forgives us, offers us eternal life, and adopts us as his children. Today is an opportunity for you to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. There will be ministers down front, and their wives will be here next to them. If you're a lady and you'd like to talk to a woman, they will be here uh, down front to pray with you or to talk with you. But you as a believer, if you're a believer this morning, I want you to know God doesn't just speak to us as a church. He speaks to us individually. He created you individually. He loves you individually. He wants to speak to you individually, exhort you, reprove you. Whatever he wants to do in your life, will you resist him? Are you resisting him? Are you fainting when you're reproved? Are you blowing off and taking lightly his discipline in your life? Are you saying, Lord, here I am to do your will. Whatever you want to do in me, I say yes and amen. Would you re-surrender yourself, whether you do it from your seat or you come down to this altar? Would you re-surrender? Would you submit yourself under the loving hand of your heavenly Father? There are great things he has in store for you. And he wants you to take the park and break off, let go of the things that are holding you back, and take your walk with him to the next level. Today is an opportunity to say yes to that. Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, we, your children, want to hear and do whatever you want to do in our lives, Lord. I pray that we would say yes to you this morning. I pray we would not harden our neck, stiffen our spines, stubbornly resist, or complain against your working in our lives. Lord, I pray you'd give us new eyes, fresh eyes to view the circumstances of our lives. They are not random accidents for no reason. Lord, you are at work in all of us. You're answering our prayers. You're conforming us to the image of Christ. You're drawing us to yourself. Lord, I pray you'd do a new fresh work in us. Sanctify us, Lord. Draw us more intimately to you. Save the lost, Lord, and make us fruitful for your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.
Let's sing together and you come as the Lord leads.